calling all denizens of the dark, mavens of mayhem, and champions of chaos. Lock your doors and listen close. It's time for another episode of Spies, Lies, and Private Eyes. Here's your host, Terence McCauley. I am Terence McCauley, and welcome to another edition of Spies, Lies, and Private Eyes on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. My guest today is Lisa Tolles, an award-winning Amazon best-selling crime novelist. She is a passionate speaker on the topics of fiction writing, creativity, and strategic self-care. Lisa has eight crime novels in print, with The Ritters serving as her newest release back in November 2022. Her previous thriller, Hot House, in June of 2022, was a Kindle bestseller and won the 2022 BookFest Literary Award in Mystery and Crime. Her thriller, 95, won a Literacy Titan Award for fiction, and The Unseen won the Big Book Award in crime fiction. She is an active member of the Mystery Writers of America, Sisters in Crime, and the International Thriller Writers. She has an MBA in IT management and works full-time in the tech industry. Lisa, welcome to the show. And it's great to have you on here. I know everyone's gonna be excited to learn about you and we'd love to learn about your uh, newest release, The Ritters. Thank you, Terrence. I'm so excited to be here and I have followed your writing career and your books and I'm, I'm delighted to see, um, to see how this podcast is just skyrocketing. It's an honor to be here. <clears throat> Thank you. So, so in The Ritters, um, which is my, my ninth book, um, and it's a first-person point-of-view thriller, I introduce you to a guy named B.J. Janoff. B.J.'s 21 years old, a recent college grad, and we all remember that period in our lives. So he simultaneously knows everything and nothing. Mm -hmm. I, I won't say he's arrogant, because he's not. He just feels like, really, there's no danger in the world large enough to actually scare him. And boy, do I change that. What I put <laughs> that guy through in that book. BJ has a degree in computer science, and he was hired as the IT guy at his brother's PI firm, his older brother, but he desperately okay. wants to be a private investigator, and ultimately his brother's equal, right? And he's also desperate to find his father, who disappeared after their mother died three years ago. So that's a little of the kind of deeper concepts driving the more topical parts of the plot, which involve mm -hmm. BJ being given a pile of money to deliver an envelope to a luxury hotel. It takes place in Los Angeles, and the hotel I chose is the Bonaventure because I just think it's the most breathtakingly beautiful hotel I've ever been to. Okay. So, uh, you're located in California, right? Yes. Yep. I, okay. I live in the Bay Area, but this takes place in SoCal. In so okay, great. Yeah, that's, yep. that's good. So you have a good frame of reference there for setting. Yep. And I've been to LA a number of times. I've been to the Bonaventure a number of times. I, I had a wonderful trip with my sister researching different places that this book took place. So I oh. drove down there and she flew in and we went here and here and here. And just so that I could kind of see how it smells, how it looks, um, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, the experiential part of that research is just so much more powerful than, um, than just internet research. But 
So the plot takes him through an investigation of what's in the envelope that would even be worth a million dollars. And then the more important investigation, I think, is why him? Why was he chosen? And the deeper he digs, the more he realizes that there was nothing random about this encounter with the game players who gave him this assignment in the first place. And so it takes him through this sort of underbelly in L.A. where he stumbles upon a controversial, that's a that's putting it lightly, technology a nefarious mastermind behind it, and then something called the Brotherhood of Ritters, which is linked to the U.S. State Department, the the CIA, and the Bilderberg Group. So that's that's why I call this kind of a coming-of-age thriller, um, like another of my books was in 2021 to 95. So that's a little bit about BJ and like what the heck he's doing here and kind of why he's doing it. It's interesting that you um, made the IT person a uh, detective, especially with your background in IT. You have an MBA in um, IT management because, you know, we're, we're used to thinking of the IT department as the people who just make the uh, email work or helping our computer to run better or install a program. But yep. in reality, they, I would imagine there are a lot of investigative elements to that kind of work. That's a wonderful point. I, I hadn't even thought of that particular connection. Um, I, I, I think from BJ's perspective, you know, he just like grew up watching spy movies and reading like spy books. And, and that's, that's what he always wanted to do. And, you know, he was kind of forced into this, um, this opportunity to, um, to get a bachelor's degree in computer science, which is, you know, he knows it's practical. I mean, it's, it's relevant to literally everything in our world, right? I mean, IT is like it or not inescapable, but you know, you're right. There is an investigation. People, people bring in someone in IT because this doesn't work, or this is supposed to work this way and it doesn't work this way. And these connections are, um, are all in the right place. And why isn't it doing it in, in an IT, um, an IT professional will, you know, just kind of like um, methodically go through each and every piece and make sure all of the parts are talking to each other. And yeah, it is kind of an investigation of sorts. And that's how his brain works. You know, I mean, he was trained in engineering. And what do engineers do when they wake up in the morning? They build things and they fix things. They're like, what's broken in the world that I can fix? And I think he's kind of like that too. But he wants to, he's competing with his brother. He wants to be an equal. You know, I mean, like he did take some training in private investigation and his older brother Janoff is like, dude, you have no field experience. I'm not putting you out on a job. I mean, you've been reading books and taking online classes. And, Mm -hmm. you know, so, so they have this kind of rival rivalry BJ and his brother Jonas um, and I use the TV series Supernatural one of them is Dean and one of them is Sam and you know they they have this kind of role play banter going on throughout the book so it's kind of mm-hmm. fun <clears throat> wow that's awesome and it sounds like um, place also plays an important role in the book and earlier you mentioned that you went to that hotel uh, before I forget is that the same hotel where they filmed a couple of Bosch scenes like yep. the famous bar scene uh, yep. And, okay, and also, also that film Nick of Time was filmed there with Johnny Depp years ago. And it's just a just a beautiful, beautiful hotel lobby. Yeah. Yeah, it looks like it. Yeah. And then they also uh, Johnny Depp also was at the Marriott, the big cylindrical Marriott um, in that movie, too. I think Nick of Time, where I think okay. the assassination happens. That mm. was uh, that was another one. It's not as beautiful as the other hotel, though. Um, I had an experience like that, too, when I wrote a book that was set in Los Angeles in 1930s, 
And I was out there for the Turner Classic Movie Film Festival as, as an attendee. And I wanted to see where one of the buildings I had mentioned back in the 30s was located. And it was right there, just as I had seen it on Google Maps. And mm. it stunned me because I had written about this place and now I was finally seeing it. Did you have that kind of experience too when you were uh, doing the actual, re uh, visiting the actual places that are in the book? Yeah, they're they're never like you. Uh, they're they're never exactly like you you envision. I mean, even if like visually they look like the pictures, you know, being immersed in a place and hearing like the echo, you know, based on like the um, the 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 structure and the architecture, and you know, there's there's something that's um, that's really immediate about that, and you can write about that. And I think we need to do that. We need to put readers um in in that place so that they can experience that you know what they see what they smell what they hear you know like how like can you see the parking lot across the street from where you're standing because if you don't do that research and know readers who live there they're going to write to you and they're going to be like dude did you even go there you can't see the parking lot from there and and you know they might be brutal in a review or they might be compassionate and send you an email saying hey you got this wrong and, and we need that information we're not writing for ourselves we're writing for readers. We want to write what they want to read, and we need to do our due diligence to make sure that we um, that we craft the story in a realistic way to a place. Right, exactly, and that's why I think it's always important to travel to wherever we write about at some point, because even though it's expensive, uh, it can be at least with airfare and hotels these days. I always look at it as an investment in myself and in my craft. Do you think of it that way as well? Exactly. And it's also an adventure, you know, I mean, like coming out of post COVID, I, I want, you know, like, like little trips like that to be, um, to, to be plentiful for me right now, just to kind of break me out. I'm, I'm not a great flyer. So I don't think I'd be able to fly someplace that was like um, a 20 hour trip. I'm better at things that are like five or six hours or something like that. But yeah, an opportunity to see a place, even if it's just for a weekend, it's gonna inform so many things about the writing. And even if it's not directly about that place, I, you know, I might write something about the view that I see of it as I'm flying into it, which is a different perspective. You know, when you're sitting when you're standing in a city, you know, it's very myopic, but, you know, I mean, right. from a bird's eye view, you can understand so much more of your world, I think. Right. And I think it also helps with future works, too, that even if you're not going to be setting another story right there in the same area with a completely different cast of characters, it gives you with a sense of travel, it gives you a sense of, of place that you might be able to use in another book or another That's right. story. That's right. Yep. Yeah, um, yeah, because uh, it's it's also interesting that you made your uh, protagonist an IT manager. What was the part of the of your experience in that world that you gave some experience to your protagonist? Um, I I didn't plan on using anything about my IT background. My IT background is in specifically software engineering. Um, I worked in all uh, a number of different areas of software engineering, um, and I never I never planned to put that in a book. And I think we don't plan those things, right? You're an author, mm -hmm. you know. It's like you wake up in the in, in the morning and you're like, oh, this character does this for a living. Okay, you know, as my husband puts it puts it so aptly, he says that my characters push me around a lot and they do, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. like I, I can, 
I can um, sort of like shove that out of the way and say, no, I had planned to, to have it be this way, but it's going to be like more powerful and more, more organic if I let it kind of bubble up from the ether and inform, um, and inform where the story is going to go. So I try to kind of, you know, sort of balance that um, outlining planning part of my brain with this sort of surrender um, you know, kind of the more metaphysical physical part of fiction writing. I try to balance those two things. So I didn't really plan it that way. It just kind of like, it, it just kind of came to me. It's funny how they do take a life of their own, our characters, isn't it? Uh-huh, uh-huh, yep. Especially, when, that's how you know when it's working, when you're just uh, serving as a reporter and the, the story kind of tells itself. A scribe, absolutely. And I exactly. think um, I think Stephen King, you know, like I... um. I'm a member of uh, the two two writing organizations that you mentioned, Mystery Writers of America and Sisters in Crime. And my writing compadres and I talk a lot about um, plotters versus pantsers. You know, if you're mm -hmm. a plotter, you have a very organized um, uh, kind of almost architectural outline of where your story is going to go. And the whole thing is plotted out before you even start writing. And pantsers just kind of go by the seat of their pants. I'm absolutely in the middle. I definitely do pl do plotting. I definitely have um, kind of short-term outlines, but it's like driving with low beams as opposed to high beams. So when I start a book, I have no idea where it's going to end up. Or if I have an idea of the ending, I have no idea how I'm going to get there. And that's fun. And that's great. And Stephen King wrote a book called On Writing. I'm sure, yeah. I'm sure you know about it. And I read it early on in my writing um, journey and it changed everything for me. You know, as a less experienced writer, I thought I have to outline all my books. And what I was finding is outlining a book takes tremendous creative energy and intellectual yes. energy. And I found that once I got to the end of the outline, I had no juice left for writing the actual book. And it mm -hmm. was, um, it was just kind of, it just kind of hobbled me. And I read Stephen King's book and he said in that book that he doesn't recommend using an outline because when you do, you prevent this kind of organic magic to bubble up and to kind of let you know where the story is supposed to go. And I thought, oh, hallelujah, fine. Now I don't have to do this anymore. Now I have like a, a legitimate reason for why I'm not doing it. I mean, so I wrote a couple of books with no outline, but I mean, now I do... Um, I do outline them. So, so as I say, I'm kind of like half and half, which is a good balance for me, I think. How about you? Right. right. I don't do a lot of uh, outlining myself. I tend to have an idea of where the story is going to go. And then I start the journey. And uh, that's why a lot of my writing is so descriptive, because I'm finding out as much of the about the plot as the reader is as well. And sometimes I'll go back and I'll change it. Or I, I've even in the recent book I had, I pushed the beginning up a bit and included things behind it. So, uh, you know, it's it, I think a story, if the writer is open to it, can uh, evolve as we're, we're picking away at it. As long as you're in the chair and you're at the keyboard or you're at the, the pad and paper and you're writing, I think it all it all works. I mean, it's uh, it, it's it's about enjoying the, the, the process of it. and that's something that I find incredibly rewarding. And I was wondering with you, since you came from such a, a technical computer background, what was the spark that made you want to give fiction writing a try? I started writing stories um, when I was a little girl. It was never a conscious decision. I mean, I, I always kind of 
felt like a writer. It wasn't like, I want to be this when I grow up. It was more like kind of, this is like who I am. And I, I remember um, just one memory. I, I grew up in Boston and, um, you know, Boston has like nine months of winter and incredible, <laughs> incredible, incredible winters. So the good thing about that, I, I hate the cold, but the good thing about that is you get a lot of snow days. The bad thing about that is you're going to school till like the middle of June at the end of the year. So, I mean, you have to kind of pay, pay the piper back eventually, but right. on a, on a snow day, um, and, and my parents were teachers, so, you know, like career teachers. And my mom would say, you can watch 30 minutes of TV today and you have to spend the rest of the day doing something constructive. And we would whine and cry. And she would say, you know, um, like, like paint a picture, play a game, um, do something like with make believe or, um, or write a story. And so I would always gravitate to writing, writing stories. And I, I would just make up these wild tales and that was fun. And that was an escape. And I find I need it in my life. I, I write yeah because I need that escape but it's also a learning opportunity for me you know I'm a lifelong musician and I don't write books about music um, I come from a musical family and I've never once written a book even about a musician I don't think because it's a world that I know and it's just kind of like in in my blood and I write things that I don't know about because there's tremendous learning in that you know I mean I try to pick up one of my passions you know so the Ritters is a political thriller and I love political thrillers so that's just such a juicy canvas for me you know I mean like they're they're there are lots of ways to write political thrillers too. This is not about like a like a White House um, domestic sure. political thriller. This is more about like the the Bilderberg Group, which is a global uh, kind of organization slash shadow government. And um, it, it was a great opportunity to learn about Freeports. Freeports are just I could talk all day about those. I don't know if you remember Freeports from the movie Tenet, but I mean they're just such a fascinating. Um, fascinating institution uh, like a freeport isn't really a place and it's um it it's it's a way to put goods like paintings or other valuables into this sort of shelter and it's not taxed so it's not so if, okay. if, you, if you go to a freeport in geneva and you want to store something there geneva switzerland um right it's a very unregulated place. It's probably getting a little bit more regulated now, but that's why they're so popular. They're normally um, situated adjacent to um, to an airport, and it's like a tax shelter, but it's a shelter of other kinds too. So you can hide all kinds of things there. And so I really enjoyed the research in that. I, I can see your face. The wheels are turning, right? You're like, oh, this has tremendous possibilities, right? It does, but I also um, one of the things I do when I've I've written a lot and I try to take a little bit of a mental holiday is that I'll watch documentaries about something that's totally unrelated to anything I'm doing, and I think I saw one uh, a Freeport in a documentary they just did about the missing Leonardo uh, da Vinci painting. I think it, it was uh, oh God Christ. Uh, not Christ over the world. It was it was just one picture. It was one painting of of Jesus, and they and the guy who owns it now uh, finally um, found it, and he had it in a, in an area just like you're talking about. And they had somebody on from J.P. Morgan's Art Investment Bank division, and I didn't even know they had stuff like that. And this guy is an art expert who helps people borrow money to buy 
expensive pieces of art, which is another world that's just fascinating. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so you so you delved into this this Freeport notion, which I think people are going to find very interesting. I I I could read about them all day. It's just so fascinating how they've how these how they have existed for so long, and there are a number of them. Um, in the United States and all over the world too. And um, yeah, it's it's just fascinating. So some of the things that happen in the Geneva Freeport in my book are, are not true, but there's a lot of truth to, um, to this fictional thriller. The part about the mm-hmm. Bilderberg group, I did a ton of research on that. And, and it's not easy to find information on them because they were an extremely secretive group up until really like 10 years ago. I mean, now, you know, like you, you look at the X-Files, I don't know if you've ever watched the X-Files and kind of yep. like that sort of like shady consortium, that's essentially like the Bilderberg group. I mean, so they were really like kind of in the shadows for many, many years. Now, of course, um, they're much more public and it's not just, you know, a very um, kind of uniform type of person that's a member of the Bilderberg group. Now it's much more diverse and diverse in every single possible way. So it's, it was really interesting learning about kind of the, you know, about the legitimate and less legitimate um, initiatives that they've had. And it was, it was just fascinating, but, but the whole part about like secrets, that's really sort of what propels all of my books and layers of secrets too. And so that was, uh, that, that's always fun learning about um, something like that and learning about the um, kind of labyrinth uh, and infrastructure that hides a secret and prevents it from being exposed to the world and looking at what the right. stakes are too. You know, I mean, like that's the thing about secrets. You know, I mean, if it's not going to hurt anyone, no one's going to care and it's not even really qualified to be called a secret. But there's always right. kind of like intrigue around, you know, who's, who's lo- whose life is going to be changed if this gets exposed and the stakes were pretty high. And that's that's kind of the hot water that BJ found himself in. And, you know, like all rabbit hole books like this, once you get deep enough to really realize what's going on, often you're in too deep to be able to get out safely. And then all of a right. sudden, uh, you know, that that's what kind of gives it like a push, it keeps people turning the pages. And that's our job, right? It's our job to right. write something that people are gonna wanna keep flipping. Right. Yeah. I mean, because there's a, and, and also as a fine line, when you talk about something as dynamic as Freeports or the, the Bilderberg group themselves, uh, it's, it's easy to get lost in the weeds. It's easy to let that element take over an entire book when you're not there to write a book about Bilderbergs and you're not there to write a book about Freeports. You're there to tell a story. How did you strike the right balance between being informative and uh, keeping your story going, because there's a lot of material out there, as you said, about the Bilderberg group, and you could spend a decade researching them and still not get everything. That That's a great question, Terrence, and it's a great point. So, you know, whatever technology I'm writing about in the book, I have to constantly remind myself that not everyone is going to be interested enough to learn a lot about it. They might be interested to learn about it, but I mean, like, not that interested. They're there for BJ. I mean, so I have to keep reminding myself, you know, like, like what's happening? What, what are, um, you know, like, are the stakes high? And what's mm-hmm. happening to BJ? And what is he learning in this stage of the process? And, you know, kind of like, how are we addressing his overarching goals of finding equality with his brother? <clears throat> locating his missing father, feeling like his family 
um, has structure again, even though they lost their mother a few years ago, and him developing as a person. You know, he starts out as essentially a kid, and he's a man by the end of this book. So I have to keep reminding myself of those overarching, um, overarching goals. And, you know, I, I guess to answer your question more directly, I use myself as a barometer. I'm easily bored. And I and there's a there, there's a lot that I skip in novels if it goes too deeply into a subject matter and I find myself kind of scanning for the next area of dialogue. It's so cruel that I do right. that, but I, I have to put myself to that test too. You know, a lot of times I'll skip a prologue, but I always include a prologue in my books. And in the editing parts, the editing stage, a lot of times I'm I'm having talks with myself about really you have another prologue are you really going to do this again you know you don't read them like why even right. include it it just feels like hypocritical to me so I think it's the editing phase that I have um, that voice of reason and I also work with an editor who's amazing and we might have three four four rounds that we're going through and we have conversations about it and you know there are times that you mentioned this earlier today too that um that we moved something that's in um, chapter three or four to the beginning. You know, I mean, the right. material that I had originally in chapters one, two, and three, it might be good and it might be relevant, but it's not fast enough. You can't start a thriller with background because no one cares about your character yet. You have to put them right. in peril like right now from the beginning and then kind of like spoon it to them a little bit as you go along. So yeah, it's tricky. Right. It is tricky, yeah, and it's all about finding that right balance between um, being informative but also being uh, lost in the weeds. Uh, I found that with uh, Dan Brown's uh, The Da Vinci Code, it was you know mega bestseller, God bless him. But there were big portions of exposition there that you could tell he did his homework. He wanted to make sure you knew it, and he just dumps it in there. And yeah, mm -hmm. it's done in the in the context of dialogue. But it real, it's a, it, it's funny because it's essential to the story because without it, you don't know what's going on. But at mm -hmm. the same time, it does take up a lot of space and it does kind of kill the momentum in the book. So that's a tough balance to strike. Mm -hmm. I, I think that's a great point. And I, I totally agree. And I loved the Da Vinci Code. But yeah, it is very, it is very technically um, kind of kind of dense about uh, about a lot of that history. There's um, the, the frightening technology that I talk about in this book is called, um, I won't give too much of it away, but it's called Promession. And it's a pretty creepy technology. And, and it's actually true. It's going on in the world. And it's kind of like an environmental conservation um, method. And um, it's, uh, I, I didn't want to give people too much of that because, um, you know, because I'm, I'm assuming that people, you know, again, are there to hear about how is v, how is BJ impacted by this and how much do people really need to know about it? So I don't know. Right. You you can read it and you can tell me how I did with like the, the amount that I gave people uh, about that. But no, it's a great point. Yeah. And I, uh, I've written a lot about advanced technology myself. So I understand. It is also sometimes a, a learning curve that we have to expect with the audience. Uh, my first book, uh, Sympathy for the Devil, um, I wrote about a device they had that is looks like a regular cell phone, and for all intents and purposes it is, but it has access to something called the Omni system that mm -hmm. my intelligence organization, the university, uses. And I had more people email me who had a technology background tell me, oh, are you kidding me? You have his thumbprint and an eye scan to access his phone? The, the secret parts of his phone, that's impossible. That'll never happen. The book, the 
the phone would have to weigh five pounds. But meanwhile, I had done my research and they were already doing it in Europe and Asia. So, mm -hmm. you know, they, mm -hmm. the, the, we have to be careful about revealing too much because people get hung up on that and then pulled out of the story. So like right. you said, you have to find a good way to keep them informed, but keep them reading too. Mm -hmm. Yep, exactly. Yeah, it's a very uh, it's a very important balance. Do you see this uh, becoming a series for you, or do you see it as uh, a standalone? Uh, what, what's your vision for BJ and the other group? So um, I I left off the Ritters um, in sort of an open way that leaves an opportunity if I were to write a sequel. I don't necessarily see it being a series, but there could be a sequel at some point. But I ha I haven't written it yet, and and really historically. Um, I, I write standalone thrillers. My first book was mm -hmm. published in 2002. So I, I've been doing this a long time and I've been doing it long enough to see kind of like what my tendency is. My tendency is, um, is standalone thrillers. I did write a three, a three book series, um, the ENA series and book one came out in June of this year. It's called Hot House. Book two called Salt Island comes out next June. And I don't mm -hmm. have a date yet for book three. I haven't even showed it to my publisher yet, but um, but that's a three book series. And that's the first series that I've ever written. And I like the idea of a series, but my my kind of natural tendency is standalone. So, so far, um, The Ritters is a standalone, but I may write, uh, I, I may write a sequel to it. And, and like we were talking about earlier, we'll see, you know, I'll just wake up one day and like BJ Janoff will be in my head and say, okay, ready? Or I, I have another one and I'll like scramble around to like write and say, okay, all right, I'm ready. And, you know, I'm, I'm your vessel, I'm your scribe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that goes back to what we were saying earlier about the characters kind of taking over and people who don't write don't understand what that's like. But mm -hmm. uh, those mm -hmm. of us who are fortunate enough to do it, I need to be wise enough to to listen to them when they uh, when they're telling us something. Well said. Yeah, no, it really is. Uh, so you told me a little bit about what your um, what you've got coming up for the next year, and I know that you said you come from a musical background, but you don't include any of that in your work. Do you think in any future work, a what kind of music do you play, and and b do you see that possibly being part of a future novel or short story or something? Mm, um, I have written a couple of short stories about music. Um, I'm a, a lifelong flutist. I come from a, a family of musicians. Um, I also play piano, um, but I wouldn't call myself necessarily a, a pianist. Um, I'm a classically mm -hmm. trained flutist. I graduated from music school and I made part of my living as a jazz flutist for many years when I lived in um, in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And I still play oh, in wow. my own house and my husband's a musician. And, um, and it's still, um, it, I won't say it's a part of my life. It's, it's who I am. I, I mean, mm -hmm. I, I, I look at the world as, as a musician. And even though my MBA was in IT management, I got a liberal arts um, background. My, my bachelor's degree is in music and I minored in mm -hmm. psychology and, you know, it's, it's, and I think having that liberal arts background was great to help me like kind of develop, um, develop myself, develop my brain. You know, I mean, there's so much that can benefit from that problem solving, conflict resolution. Um, but then um, I was working in engineering for many years and I wanted to see, I'd worked in corporate America, like really since the beginning. Um, and I wanted to see how, uh, see a deeper level, you know, again, peeling back layers of how the, how and why the business world works the way it does. And that's what mm -hmm. that gave me. 
So I, I felt like that was a really, really useful, um, useful degree. But um, but my musical background was was so important. Um, and I, yeah, I have put put that into a couple of short stories. Um, I'm trying to think of what they are now. And um, I might write something about about a musician someday about a probably not a flutist <clears throat> because right. again, that's too close to home. I, I want to write something that I know less about so that I can learn about it. <clears throat> Maybe I'll write something about a cellist someday who who like, you know, has like a special compartment in his cello where he keeps a gun or something like that. <laughs> all, all kinds of fun possibilities. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and even if you don't uh, include that in something, it, it's it's interesting that your liberal arts background allowed, uh, gave you the training to observe things and to observe uh, exactly. where, people wherever you were working, no matter what the industry was. And that's an important skill for a writer to have, especially a fiction writer. Mm-hmm. I think one of my most important mentors is um, is a best-selling novelist named Sarah Lovett. And I went to one of her workshops one time in New Mexico, and she said, um, <clears throat> in order to be a good writer, don't forget to live. You can't just sit mm. kind of behind your computer. You have to get out there and travel and see the world and interact and, and be a part of it. And I thought that was, she has so much amazing guidance, but that was something that really uh, that really stuck with me. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, for introverts like us who are writers, it's uh, it's difficult to get out there, but it's also an essential part of of making sure you're doing your craft as well as you possibly can. Yep. Can I ask you, Terrence, who um, who are your um, top mentors, one or two that come to mind that really shaped who you are as a writer? Yeah. One person was um, someone I a mentor I had from the Gotham Writers Workshop in New York. He's no longer with us, unfortunately, Wesley Gibson. and. Um, he was he was great about running the workshop, but he also would filter in as we were reviewing each other's work uh, a lot of lessons he had learned as a writer. And he said, and I've blogged about this, one of the important lessons to learn is that when you're writing, don't be quick to tell everybody that you're a writer because you're doing something that people can feel very threatened about by taking the one essence that makes us different from everybody else in the world which is our creativity and developing that. And people will, could be threatened by that and they could be openly hostile or they could be subtly hostile and not even realize it in the form mm -hmm. of helping you saying, oh, well, I'm trying to encourage you to do this. But you know, can you really write about somebody who's a private detective? Can you really write about somebody who's a 50 year old ex-cop when you haven't been in uh, the police force? There's so, you know, it's, it's important to, do the he I learned from him that it's important to get the work done and then acclaim, criticism, whatever will come later, but make sure you do it as good as you possibly can before you start sharing it with the world. And we want to do that, I think, because mm -hmm. as writers, we're not writing it for ourselves. We ultimately want this to go out and we want to get the feedback, but sometimes it's a little too early and it's uh it's it's not ready for prime time. Uh Few That's people right. write perfect first drafts. The other one would be Elmore Leonard, who says, mm -hmm. skip the parts that people leave out the parts that people tend to skip. And you mentioned that earlier. You know, yeah. when you say you'll you'll jump you'll jump down to dialogue. And yep. that's why I try like you, I think, try to fold in the information as the story unfolds. 
That, that's that's great to hear. And Elmore Leonard is such a master at that, at, you know, kind of like the immediacy of um, of the plot and the characters and, and skipping anything that's slow or lags. That's something that I, I think he's better than than most at. So great to hear. Yeah. Another one is uh, is Richard Matheson, who I always recommend to people because he wrote in all different types of genres. He also wrote I Am Legend. And I often wish someone would just make a movie based on the book because what happens in the book is absolutely awesome. Omega Man got close, but it was kind of, it had some cheesy parts to it too. But it's Chuck Heston in the 70s, you gotta love it, right? Um, but it's, uh, yeah, he was always really great about writing about people that we don't necessarily understand, but that we're fascinated about right off the bat. So um, mm -hmm. he's another one I always look to for inspiration. After you have the next um, group of books out, what do you? What other topics are you think you might be tackling in 2024 and beyond? Um, so I, I'm I'm fortunate enough to work with um, Indies United Pub, Indies United Publishing, and I'm mm -hmm. able to um, through them I'm able to get two books out a year, which is great. You know, summertime and and holiday. I did that last year, and now I'm doing it again this year and next year. I have Salt Island on tap for June, and for the November December timeframe next year, I have two finished thrillers that I'm thinking about. One of them is a young adult thriller. The title is Specimen, and it's another kind of like tech thriller. Um, mm -hmm. Takes place in San Francisco, and then there's another thriller that I wrote called Terror Bay, about uh, about uh, a medical doctor whose uh, whose son dies, and when he loses his son, he um, he becomes a uh, a police officer, goes to the police academy, and eventually works his way up to be a, a homicide detective, and um, and he's injured, and he's in a coma, and he comes out of the coma and just looks at the world in a completely different way, and he was kind of altered by that experience. And he, it's another kind of rabbit hole thriller where he gets sort of like pulled into this um, this intriguing path where he saw someone in his head while he was in a coma, and he becomes obsessed with the idea of finding her and finding why she contacted him when, you know, of course, the whole thing could certainly be a delusion. There's so much about coma that that we still don't know. So that was a really interesting thing to research. That was um, that that was fun. So I'm not sure if Specimen or or Terror Bay are going to be uh, a year from now, but hopefully one of those will. But you know, as as I said, they're both um, just crappy first drafts, as as first drafts are supposed to be. I mean, it's it hasn't yeah. gone through any rigor yet whatsoever. So there are like 96 edits that have to happen on them before they're publishable. But hopefully, one of those two will be uh, will be at that point, and then maybe the other one the following June. And then I'm just gonna keep writing thrillers and see what wants to come up. That's fantastic. That is fantastic. Have you gotten a lot of uh, feedback from people about the Ritters, especially since you cover um, hot button topics like the Bilderbergs? A lot of people don't know about them, but those who do are immediately drawn to that. Have you gotten a lot of feedback uh, from fans who like your work, uh, uh, especially for that book? It, it just came out on November 30th, but there is some good feedback so far. People like BJ. Um, people really like kind of the interplay be between BJ and his brother. And also the girl next door is a character named Lacey Diaz. Um, she's a lawyer and uh, she's just a smart cookie. And um, and they like kind of um, that interplay. BJ has kind of a um, kind of a connection between Lacey. They're 
they're essentially brother and sister. They grew up right next to each other. And by the end of the book, he realizes that he's been in love with her all these years, really, since he was a kid. So that's another thing that just kind of a, a, an epiphany that just rocks his world. Um, people like, like the kind of characterization. Um, people like the short chapters um, mm -hmm. and kind of the pace of the book. Um, one thing I get dinged on by a lot of readers is that my books are short. And I don't know what to do about that. They just come out that way. You know, a lot of people think, you know, hey, I invested $16 or whatever in a um, in, in a paperback and, and your book is short. You know, a, a lot of times people will expect a 400 page book. I, I, I just write shorter books and they just come out that way. So the Ritters is a little bit longer than Hot House. I think it was like just under 80,000 words, but you know, that's one mm -hmm. thing that, that I've heard, but you know, you're never gonna please everyone and- no. um, and yeah, so, so far, so far, the feedback is good and I'm grateful. Fantastic. And I'm confident that that is going to continue both with this book and with all of the other ones that you've got coming out in the near future. How is the best way for people to follow you what, on social media, your website? What, how could people keep track of you? Um, my website is lisatolls.com. And on Instagram, I am author Lisa Tolls. And yeah, they, they could go to my website and see all my social media links. I'm on, um, I'm on Facebook. I have a personal account and, and an author page. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Pinterest. Um, also Twitter. On Twitter, I'm writer Tolls. And I'm also on TikTok. TikTok's kind of a um, so, sort of a fun, newer social media platform. And I love using TikTok just as a viewer. And I started posting on TikTok uh, kind of about a year ago, and I have mm -hmm. just under 600 followers that care absolutely nothing about my books. They're only there for my cats. <laughs> I have two cats. <laughs> I, I have two uh, funny cats, Coffee and Marmalade. And for the for the cat videos, I get like um, 600 views and like 350 likes for the book videos i might have 100 views and seven likes and so that's you know that's what i'm learning people are there for the cats and they're less interested in books but if i have <laughs> if, if i have 600 people following me and if i put something out on one of my books at least they're going to see it you know they might not take the time to like it or share it or to follow me um but they are still going to see it. So, I mean, in terms of visibility and growing my, you know, kind of, of sphere of influence, it's still a good thing to do. But yeah, it's just funny that anything about my cats, they absolutely love. So, of course, I did. Uh, I got this smart idea and I thought, create a video with Marmalade, like holding one of my books and putting his paw on one of the pages like he's reading it. Right. I thought I thought I was so savvy doing that. Nothing. No, like <laughs> hardly, hardly any viewers, hardly any likes. All right. Yeah, I know it, it's funny, but it's also um, it, I think it's also important too to do as you do, which is to be active on social media too. It's not just about uh, putting stuff out there about our books, which of course we want everybody to know about, but you're you also do a very good job of interacting with people online, and uh, you ask questions and you engage, and I think that helps because that's how you and I learned of each other. You responded to something I posted. And um, we created dialogue and now we're here. So you, you here do a very are. good job of, yeah. And you do a very good job of, of engaging. And I think that's something that writers, including myself could learn from uh, mm. by your example, doing that. Thank you. I appreciate it. No problem at all. This has been a fantastic interview. My guest today has been Linda, Lisa Tolls, and I am Terrence McCauley. 
And I thank you for listening to yet another edition of Spies, Lies, and Private Eyes right here on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. We'll see you next time. Thank you for your time. You have been listening to Spies, Lies, and Private Eyes with host Terrence McCauley on Authors on the Air Global Radio Network.